and now I'm on. That wasn't them, that was me. Sorry. Um, by the way, Derek, just a detail. I'm, I'm down to like one bar on the battery. If you want to change it, that's up to you. I know we're big church, but we're still small church, okay? We can do those things. So that video was meant to heap guilt on you. Did you feel it? Okay. If you didn't feel it, Derek encouraged me to share a, an illustration with you. Um, because of the size of the church and the amount of people that attend, we obviously need a lot of people to serve and get engaged in helping the church succeed. Um, one example of that would be three weeks ago, we were almost not able to do our live broadcast because we didn't have camera operators. So in the last minute, they had to kind of pull people out of the atrium and put them on a camera. So if you don't think that you can do a camera, you certainly can. We can teach you how to do that. But I know if you can't do that, you can serve cookies, which I totally vote for, okay? Or you can help in children's ministry. So we would love to encourage you. If you haven't found a way to plug in and to get to know individuals here at the church, or you haven't found your place to serve yet, we very much encourage you to plug in uh, and find a way to do that. So engage with some of the staff and ask maybe of ways that you could actually serve here. I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis with me. If you would, if you have your Bible with you, maybe um, you have it electronically or a hard copy, I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis 17. And if you're new to New Hope, you're going to find that we're in the midst of a study called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. And we're working our way through kind of a, sometimes a chapter at a time, sometimes a verse at a time. This morning, it'll be a chapter. I think we're moving at a pretty good pace. You may not think so, but we're moving along pretty well, I think. We're in Genesis 17 already, and I'm just amazed we're at this point. Um, I'm going to share a verse with you that launches Genesis study this morning, but it's not coming from Genesis, and it comes from the New Testament, and you may not find it to be a natural link with what you think of in Genesis 17, but let me put it up on the screen for you, and it comes from the New Testament from 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. A pretty good chance that a lot of people haven't read that verse before, and they're not quite sure when they do read it what it means. It means that everything that was promised, everything that God committed to Abraham and to Noah and to David and to Moses and all the descendants is confirmed by the coming of Jesus. In other words, understand it this way. If the vast gulf between mankind's sin and God's incredible righteousness if that vast gulf were an obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promises, the complete and perfect permanent sacrifice of Jesus removed that obstacle forever. That's why it says all the promises of God find their yes in him. In other words, Jesus is the yes to God's promises because Jesus removed the obstacle of sin if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. He took it away completely. Now, I want to pray with you about what you just heard because that sets up where we're going into Genesis 17 this morning. It especially links with what you just heard in the poison tree. When Bradley first shared that song with me and played it for me and then earlier this week sent me a link, I didn't totally get that song. It's one of those songs that you have to live with for a little bit and it goes deeper each time you participate with it. And I said to him, that's like a Bob Dylan song. And Bradley said, who's Bob Dylan? <laughs> if you're younger than 40, you might need to ask an, an old person next to you. Um, 
But Bob had a way of writing songs like that that had such depth that each time you went through it, you found it was deeper and it peeled off more layers. That concept behind the poison tree, that we need God to uproot that old self and replace it with new roots that are only found in Jesus, that exact thing is coming out of Genesis 17 this morning. And that's how I want to pray with you, that God would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we can take that reality and apply it to our life this afternoon and tomorrow and whatever you might do in the next month. Join me in that, please. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth that we're about to examine and to see exactly how it fits with our life. I I do ask that you would give us application that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. So go beyond what I prepared, Father, and speak to the heart, and that's only something that you can do. So if we're moved this morning, Father, to action, it's because you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, moved us. We ask that you would illuminate our mind, illuminate our eyes, give us ears to hear, and focus on your word. God, I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. I'm sure that you can identify with taking a long walk just for some fresh air. Maybe you've said to someone in your home, I just need to get out of here for a few minutes. I need to reboot my thinking. I need a fresh perspective. Perhaps you said that on the heels of a conflict. I just need some space. I need an opportunity to think, and I've got to get away from what we just did. But in the midst of that walk, there's always the return in which you have to turn and go the opposite direction and go back with a new resolve. A sense of, okay, I don't know what I'm going to walk into, but I'm determined to go back into that. As we studied Genesis 16 last week, we saw Hagar, this young Egyptian lady, had to take off and run from the environment that she was in. So we find her this morning, she's been on this very long journey, and she ran away from Abraham and Sarah. As we studied Genesis 16 and 17, they're known at this point as Abram and Sarai. But along the way, God encountered her and told her about the destiny of her unborn son. He actually described what his characteristics would be like, what his nature of behavior would be like. But he also told her about the promise that nations would arise from that child. But when you come to chapter 17, you find this very silent space between 16 and 17 that's lacking information. We want to know more about what's unfolding. But we can easily picture what's happening because most of us have been on that walk. You have this young, pregnant Egyptian. She's a servant and she's meandering her way back because God told her he wanted her to go back and submit herself to the leadership of Abram and Sarai in her life. So she's going back and she's walking past the same herd of cows and the same gathering of horses and the same flocks of sheep And there she can see Abram and Sarai in the distance. And she doesn't know what she's about to step into, but she's going to submit herself. And we know that she did that because her obedience is recorded. And Abram actually named his son Ishmael. And for 13 years, life went on. 13 years of unrest. 13 years of testing and endless debate and contempt and bitterness and strife and arguing and weariness of spirit. 
because of the rebellion in that environment. See, I've wondered at what point does Abram begin to see in his son Ishmael the very characteristics that God called him out by, saying, that son of yours is going to be against everyone, and everyone is going to be against him, and he's going to be a fighter. So at what stage in life did Abram, looking at Ishmael, begin to identify, yep, I can see that in him. So the characteristics, even as a boy, each time his personality, personality flared up, Abraham's reminded of his failure to trust God. Have you had a similar experience? And by that I mean a similar experience to Abraham. God allows you to go your own way. You're pursuing your own solution to a problem. And the results turn out to be far less than what you anticipated. The results were actually not that great. At times, God allows us to go our own way so that we will learn a lesson. And one of the painful aspects of doing life with God is this reality. When we insist on having our own way, God will let us. This is spoken to in the Old Testament. Specifically, look with me on the screen at... Psalm 106, 15, he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. This is speaking of the children of Israel. They're pushing back against God so hard to the point where they said, we don't want what you're telling us to do. And God finally let them go their own way. But emptiness came as a result of it because they realized it wasn't what we thought it was going to be. We all understand that. We're human. But gratefully, while we're on planet Earth, there are second chances with God, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, because His mercies are new every morning. Amen, New Hope? Every morning, we're told, we get a fresh new slate, a new beginning. God's mercies are new every day. But that very thought runs counter to the opening statement of verse 1. I want you to look really closely at God's expectation of Abram and how he would walk each day. It says this in Genesis 17:1. Now Abram, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless." Blameless? Really? Like, how hard is that? It's hard enough to walk before God, yet walk before God blameless. And if that's not hard enough, the word blameless actually means perfect. Perfect, walk before me perfectly. Some people, when they read that, just want to throw in the towel and say, I'm never going to get there. But if that's you, just hang on, because what you're going to find is God is taking Abram to school, and he's taking us along with him. First, know this, whenever God begins describing himself in Scripture, you want to pay very close attention So the first thing he didn't say was, walk before me blameless. The first thing he did say was, I am God Almighty. That very phrase is El Shaddai. Now, many scholars don't agree on what El Shaddai means. How do you understand it? Well, you've got notes this morning, and maybe you picked them up when you came in, or maybe you downloaded those 
through our site, you'll find three Hebrew words in your notes this morning. And I want you to, to look very closely at these three words because they mean something that actually do go together. They are linked. The very first word, Shaddai, the Almighty. Now, that's what people think of when they think of El Shaddai, the Mighty One, the Powerful One. But that Hebrew word actually has its root in Shaddad. So let me put that word up for you. To be burly, to be powerful, impregnable, utterly capable of laying waste. But that word actually has its root in an Akkadian language, Shadu. And Shadu means breast. How in the world do I link these things together? Well, in Hebrew, El Shaddai, and by the way, this is the first time this word is ever used in Scripture, and El means power. Some scholars approach it this way. Well, obviously, it means to be strong, and obviously, other scholars approach it with the thought of, well, no, it actually means nourishment, the thought of it being the breast. Now, metaphorically, we understand that a breast rises up from the plain like a mountain, and a a mountain is indeed a symbol of strength. So here's where really advanced scholars go with this thought. El Shaddai, the name of the all-powerful one, is also the name of the all-sufficient one, the one who can do anything and can meet any need that you have. Now, the bigger question to ask is this, why would God choose to reveal that name here after 13 years? Why tell Abram that this is who I am after 13 years of silence? Well, the Lord wants Abram to know the meaning of his all-sufficient, all-powerful nature, so it goes like this. In other words, you, Abram, have been learning the inadequacy of your own strategies. You've gone all these years trying to come up with your own way, your own method of doing things. Now it's time for you to learn who I am. I am El Shaddai. I am capable. I am sufficient to do everything that you need. I don't know about you, but I've come to the conclusion that in 2022, our nation and Our entire globe desperately needs to rediscover the reality of El Shaddai, the God who is capable of meeting all your needs, who is sufficient for whatever you're going through. I don't know what you lost in the last couple of years. I know some of you have lost family members. Some of you have lost employment. Whatever you're going through, God declares himself to be sufficient for whatever need that you have, whatever you're going through. Now, it's in the light of this new awareness comes this huge requirement from God. Now that you know who I am, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, here's where the definition, this very important Hebrew word comes in when God says blameless. And I want you to see this particular Hebrew word. It's in your notes and it's on the screen, but it's talking about walking in integrity. It's talking about walking without blemish. And you might read that and say, if that's God's expectation, how can anyone walk before him? How is that even possible? You just need to breathe if that's what you're thinking for a moment. Because this exact same word is used as a description of Noah. And we're told that Noah was perfect in his generation. 
But we studied Noah's life, and we know that he was not perfect. And for these last few chapters, we've studied Abram's life, and we know that he's not perfect. So what could this possibly be talking about? Verse 1, God says, understand, Abram, who I am, understand what I am, and be wholly mine. Be wholehearted to me, not double-minded, not trying to do it on your own anymore, not trying to create your offspring through a second wife whom you decide to sleep with because you can't produce a child through your first wife. Stay true to my promises. This is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Look with me in the New Testament. Luke 9, 62, anyone putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Let me reframe your thinking this way. In the last number of chapters together, we've been looking at the life of Abram, and we've seen how God has met his need. He went to war with the kings of Sodom and the kings of other nations, and he was victorious. And at the end of those wars, God shows up and says to him, I am your shield, Abram. And then when Abram refuses the wealth of Sodom and says, I don't want that, God says to him, I'm going to be your exceedingly great reward. And now, when Abram and Sarai are as good as dead, God assures them that he is sufficient to bring about the promise of completely new life. So in verse 1, what it says, walk before me perfect or blameless, it doesn't mean sinless. That's impossible for anyone except for Jesus. What it's a call for is an integrity of the heart, the integrity to walk before God solely dedicated to Him. Now, I know enough about the Bible to know this. New revelation about God always brings responsibility. Revelation brings responsibility. Earlier this week in the building, the alarms were going off, and there was a, a code that was improperly entered into the phone system. And so there was this ringer going off, and people at the front desk asked me if I knew how to shut it off, and I didn't know how to shut it off. And eventually, the director of facilities, Larry Brown, came to me and said, okay, we got it off. Do you want me to take you down and show you how to turn the alarm off? And I said, no, I don't want to know, because revelation brings responsibility. And I don't want somebody calling me at 2 in the morning saying, how do you turn that thing off? Revelation always brings responsibility. So if God calls us as his own to walk before him, undefiled, single-minded, how do we accomplish this? Well, verse 2 kind of shows us that. Look with me. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. Verse 3, part A. The key to a walk of integrity before God begins with a personal worship of God. Let me flesh that out for you. Just like Abram, every single believer who's in this auditorium, every person who's within the sound of my voice, has to come to the place where we fall before the Lord. And I don't mean physically necessarily. I'm talking about coming to the point where you yield all that you are to him and you say, I am completely yours. It's not my way any longer. It's your way. And if we come to that place and we're holding back one thing, we're saying to God, that one thing is more important than my relationship with you. Abram has come to that place where he's willing to say, I'm 
fully on my face before you. I recognize who you are, and I'm not going to try and do it my way anymore. So then God can go forward with him. Verse 3, part B, and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now up to this point, Abraham has had every reason to believe that the covenant that God committed to him is going to be fulfilled through Ishmael. Mind you, this is not a new covenant that God's making. This is just an expansion, a reaffirmation of the clarifying of the covenant that he's made. But so important is this new understanding, this greater understanding of who God is, that a new name has to be given to Abram. Because whenever you see God in a greater way, whenever you see God in a new understanding, it makes a corresponding change in you. So previously, he's Abram, which meant exalted father. You can see these words, and then watch, it transitions to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. For his friends, nothing's changed. His friends would still call him that name without seeing any product, any children whatsoever, and he's got this new name, father of a multitude, but he doesn't have any children. But he's come to this place where he has to believe God, and God says, I'm going to even tell you what your future is going to be. Earlier, when God said, you can look at the dust of the ground or you can look at the stars of the sky, you're going to be reminded. Now, every time someone even calls him by name, he's going to be reminded of the commitment of God. So God begins with a very famous passage of the I will statements. Now, watch these I wills. Count how many you see God actually make to him. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, which we know is the land of Israel today, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, on one level, Israel's title to the land of this piece of possession is part of God's everlasting covenant with Abram, and it's a huge issue. And you know that it's a battleground today, and it's become a battleground for the Middle East. And it always will be until the Lord's return. And that's going on because of a lack of obedience to God. But that's a whole other issue. We're not going to that this morning. What you see unfolding here is the expanded understanding of all the families of the earth will be blessed. So look with me at verse 6. This is what I really want to push on. I will make nations of you. Is he talking about Judah? Is he talking about Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel? Or is he talking about something bigger here? The particular word that's used here is goyim. And this Hebrew word is talking about Gentiles. So, yeah, Judah, yeah, Israel, but I'm going to make nations of you, Abraham. There will be Gentiles who will be part of the kingdom because I'm going to use you. So what I want you to notice is a distinction here that's unfolding. And here's the distinction. In verse 4, God said the I wills. Here's what I'm going to do. 
But when you come to verse 9, God says, Now, as for you, Abraham, here's your responsibility. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, even those who were slaves in his household. Verse 13, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So check this. Abram's part, which is a huge responsibility, is to obey God. And God says, you're going to mark each male in your house with my sign of the covenant. Now, other than a subject that makes us want to squirm and move away from it very quickly, let's just acknowledge what a strange thing. Like, how weird that God would tell them to carve into the flesh of the male procreative organ this sign of God's lordship. What's going on here? What's intended to be a mark of his possession, that they would be hagios, that they would be holy, to remember that they belong to God. The very area of a man's body by which separation could be violated will now bear the mark of God. Now, mind you, circumcision was really common among other nations at that period of time. But God's taking that action, which was meant mostly for health reasons, and He's bringing it in to give this action meaning. And He's saying, this is not an option. This is an obligation. And you're going to place it upon the body, and it's going to indicate, check this church, that they are physically and morally separated, not geographically. And that's a really important point to remember. They're not geographically separated, but they're morally separate. What was physical to Abraham is spiritual to us today in the church. In the New Testament, you read about the circumcision of the heart. And the concept of this is found in Romans 2. It refers to having a very pure heart. And we've got time. I want to take you to Romans 2 and show you this. I, I love the book of Romans. We spent some time in it. I think it's the greatest book in the Bible, personally. They're all great, but I love the book of Romans. Let me take you to Romans 2 and watch the complication that Paul explains when he says, a Jew is not one who's just a Jew outwardly through circumcision, but is one who is one inwardly. Watch the phrase. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. And if you're new to church, you need to know that the law he's talking about there, he's talking about the commandments. If you obey the commandments. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He's talking to the Jews who are doing the letter of the law. 
but their heart didn't belong to God. So this is why he lays this truth out there. For no one is a Jew who is merely, merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, what does the heart refer to in the Bible? It's referring to your soul. It's referring to your mind. It's referring to your will. It's referring to your emotions. God says, that whole thing belongs to me. What's the very thing that Abram was called out by God on in verse 1? Walk before me and be blameless, Abraham. I want you to be wholly mine. I want you to know that I am your sufficiency. Don't be double-minded and chasing after websites that you shouldn't chase after. Don't be double-minded and chasing after bad business deals that you should never be involved in. Don't be double-minded and chasing after relationships you have no business being in. See, the New Testament calls every follower of Jesus, male and female, to bear in themselves the lifestyle that Jesus is Lord of their life. All our mind, all our emotions, all our intellect, all our desires belong to Him if we're dedicated to Jesus. Because God chose these people to be holy, now, check this geographically. Abram's family lives in the midst of a debauched society. They're in Canaan land. It hasn't become Israel yet. And as you're going to find out next week when we study Sodom and Gomorrah, it's incredible, incomprehensible immorality. But God says you're going to be among them, but you're not going to live like them. Because my people, the people of God, they're marked to be separate from the evil that's around them. Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, like each of us, Sarah has her own faults. We all have faults. Sarai had her own faults. Her, her former name, Sarai, it actually meant to be contentious. How'd you like that for a label? Hey, contentious, hi. Hey, contentious, would you come here? That's what Sarai meant. But what is also true of her is that she matured in her faith, and she trusted God to accomplish His purposes. You read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, Sarah means princess. God's naming her for what she will be, not for what she presently is, because God knows her future. So he's saying, I want you to change her name. I'm looking forward in time, and I know what she's going to become. Only the grace of God could take two heathens, two pagan idol worshipers like Abram and Sarai, and transform them into Abraham and Sarah, the leaders in his kingdom. He's done that for you. He knows what you once were. He knows what you are in Jesus. God has transformed you. Now comes the unexpected. You don't see this next verse coming, but look with me at this particular verse, verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
His, his response is not what you would expect. Why is that true, church? Because you know, you know the God who delivered Moses and the children of Israel. You know the God who took Daniel out of the lion's den. You know the God who rescued Jonah. You certainly know the God who destroyed sin and death. But those things haven't happened yet. Abram has a limited perspective. He only has an experience with God that's in a limited framework. So we read it from a present day, and we would look at it and half expect God to say to Mo what he said to Moses, like, I want you to go speak with Pharaoh. Remember what Moses protested and said, no, I'm slow of speech. I can't do that. But God said, who made man's mouth? I, the Lord of creation. Well, that same Moses, when he writes the book of Genesis, he leaves us to the reader to develop a verdict, to try and understand what angle is this laughter coming from. So I'm thinking to be sure Abram's doing this. It's biologically impossible. It couldn't happen. I'm dead. I'm dead, dead, dead. Sarah's dead. Inside, we don't have anything. So Genesis 17 is doing something. It's allowing Abram's own words to uncover the motivation behind his laughter. Let me develop this with you for just a moment. His phrase is, will a son be born to a man who's 100 years old? Now, we know in our world, laughter takes a lot of forms. There's, there's a laugh of discomfort when people try to dismiss an uncomfortable subject. They're asked a hard question. They don't want to answer it. Politicians are really good at this, so they do a fake laugh, Right? We know individuals who do fake laughs. Well, then there's the laugh of derision when somebody's mocking someone else. And then there's the laugh of disbelief when somebody totally doubts what they're hearing. You're going to see that in chapter 18 with Sarah. Then there's the laugh of your memory when you laugh at it because it was so stupid it seems funny to you. Even though maybe in the moment it caused you a lot of pain, Two weeks later, you can look back at it and say, that was really stupid. I can't believe I did that. Or maybe it's a year later because two weeks is too fresh. And then there's the laugh out loud of just something that's totally hilarious because you saw something funny in a video or you watched a clip on screen. But then there's the laugh of being utterly overwhelmed at the thought of what you've just been told. And it's so hard to process it. I remember still to this day when individuals called me and we were getting ready to purchase this land that the, the building is on right now. And we didn't have the money to purchase this land. It was over $750,000. And a couple individuals invited me to meet with them. And they told me that they wanted to give enough cash to pay for the land completely. A big old smile went across my face. It, it was not the laugh of disbelief. It was the laugh of, wow, I can't believe what God's doing. I don't know how, but I was just exhilarated. That's what's going on here. But his laughter is reflecting something. And this may be where you're at. It's the, it's the laughter of a limitation that he doesn't have the capacity to understand how God's going to bring it about. What is going to have to happen for that to be true? To this point, Abraham has not been depicted as someone whose faith is so big that God doesn't have to work on him. His faith is not that big. 
It hasn't reached full maturity. He's going to have to be pushed beyond what he thinks is his present limit. His faith is going to have to grow dramatically because what God is going to ask him in the future is so big, he's going to look back on this time and say, that was child's play. God's going to ask some huge things of him. Suffice it to say this, here both the power of God and the limitations of human understanding are embodied in this act of laughter. So Abraham's understanding of God's capacity is so limited that he thinks Ishmael has to be the one. Look with me. Verse 18, and Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you because he's trying so very hard to cling to his old way of thinking. And his old way of thinking was his strategy, what he came up with. Did you notice that that statement came after God said, I'm going to give you a son by Sarah? That statement from him comes after God promised that he would give him a son by her. I want you to say amen only if you agree with this. Because of our lack of maturity, we are unfortunately very good at putting limitations on God. I know it because I do it too. Warren Wiersbe had a really interesting insight. I wanted you to see his quote. It's in your notes, but look with me on the screen. He said, when God is preparing a bright future for you, don't cling to the things of the past. Ishmael represented the past, Isaac the future. If you have an Ishmael in your life, yield it up to God. God has a perfect plan, and what He plans is the best. It may pain you to give up your cherished dreams, but God's way is always the right way. I would never discount the relationship that Abraham has with his son Ishmael. Ishmael is loved dearly by his dad. It's all Abraham has known. And they've been together for 13 years. And Ishmael's entering into adulthood, and it's been a really long time. And Abram has pretty limited understanding of God's abilities. So God has to correct his very immature thinking and help him to understand there are no limitations with God. To quote a really famous angel, Nothing is impossible with God. You remember that from the Christmas story. Mary's going into question mode like, how could this happen? And the angel had to say to her, nothing is impossible with God. So here's where we're going to end today. And I don't want you to reach for your car keys just yet. Just stay with me. Verse 19. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Finally, God puts it on the calendar. Verse 22, when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. The reason when I say this is the last verse, but I don't want you to reach for your car keys yet, is because instantly we go into the mode of thinking what we're having for lunch. And I want your attention to wrap this up, so hear me out on this. 
Let's bring it all together. Thirteen years of silence. And God has allowed the ticking of the clock, just waiting for enough physical time to pass by to the degree that Abraham and Sarah slowly, each die day, are dying internally. Their bodies are decaying more and more every single day, decayed beyond the point that it would even be reasonable to think that they had the capacity to produce a child. They've decayed so far that you wouldn't even begin to question whether or not it was possible. So that, so that new hope, so that God's resurrection power might be displayed in them. You really need to hear that to process that. That God's power might be displayed in them. And I want you to hear that again. Because just as Jesus was in the tomb, dead, 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 beyond any reasonable question as to whether or not life is completely gone from him, when it's reached that point that his physical body is dead, 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 here in Genesis 17, you find the forerunner to the Easter story. Because here, God reveals himself as God Almighty, the El Shaddai, who is not limited at all by human capacity, the all-sufficient one to meet your needs. And he's saying to Abraham, I am capable of bringing life out of death. Where there was only decay, now there is a vibrant, energetic future. Now, here's your second chance to say amen. If Jesus has done that for you this morning, would you say amen? He's done that for you. That's the El Shaddai of Scripture. In its fullness, the meaning of God's completed promise that all the nations, that all the peoples of the earth would one day enjoy the blessings of Abraham's promise is found in Jesus. Remember the promise that God made, Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promise is utterly reliable because it's rooted in God's unchanging character. But hear this, but it could not be confirmed. It could not be completed until Christ's coming. Jesus is God's yes to you. Jesus is the completion. You who hope in Jesus, you follow him in obedience already. I know you struggle with that, but you work at it and you follow him and you want to press on towards the high calling of Christ, you are the descendants of Abraham. You're heirs according to God's promise. Look with me at Scripture. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's design was that Jesus would be the direct descendant of Abraham, thereby everybody who is in Jesus becomes an heir of God's promise. Now we're ending, Romans 4.16. The promise is according to grace in order to be guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So when God said to Abraham 4,000 years ago, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so abundantly, it'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. He opened the way for anyone anyone, no matter what nation you come from, what tribe you originate from, 
to become and belong to God as a child of Abraham. What do we have to do to share that? What do we have to do to have that promise? We have to do what Abraham did. We have to put our hope in God's promises, so much so that where obedience requires it, that where obedience requires it, you would even be willing to give up your dearest possession and not hold anything back from God. Faith in God's promise, more specifically, faith in Christ as the fulfillment of the promise. That's the yes. Jesus is the yes to those promises. So the only way to become an heir of the eternal kingdom of God is to put your faith in Jesus because that gulf between your great sinfulness and God's righteousness is eliminated in Jesus Christ. He is the one who took away the obstacle. Now, this is really important to end with. The only candidates to become Abraham's offspring, if we'll use the biblical language, is one specific group of people. The only candidates are sinners. Do you qualify? Absolutely. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. So we need to understand it this way. Not even Abraham could have enjoyed the blessings of Abraham if Jesus hadn't come to remove the obstacle of sin that separates all humans from God. Praise God, he did. Jesus removes the obstacle. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Father, I pray for every single person who is within the sound of my voice right now that we will walk in a newness of understanding of what it means to walk before you with an integrity in our heart. Whatever decisions we make this afternoon, tomorrow, a year from now, may it reflect the fact that we belong to you. Even though we live in the midst of a generation that is separated from you, God, you have set us apart as people whom you say, that one belongs to me, Father, I pray that the obedience factor in our life will be so evident to people around us that they know that we belong to you. So I ask God, you will help us to question our decisions and our actions, and that we will carry this truth forward to impact people whom we encounter, and we will speak life into them. God, I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our King, and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down here in the front after the service. But otherwise, New Hope, have a great week.